TES student here um, at NCC. I've been here for, you know, like like he said, 35 years. I was raised here at NCC, so it's kind of surreal sometimes to to be here and be able to uh, teach God's word in places where I once was learning God's word in kids ministry and student ministry. So just grateful to be here, be a part of uh, this ministry at NCC and be able to be here and, and teach you guys God's word. Um, I am married. I've, I've been married to my wife, Kia, who is at home sick today. Uh, we've been married for almost 13 years now. It'll be 13 years next month. We've got three kids. I've got an 11-year-old boy named Tyler, and then a 8-year-old uh, girl named Aubrey, and a 6-year-old little boy named, named Ethan. So our family is growing, and we're thankful for that. But um, I do take God's Word seriously, like in my own personal life, because my kids are here at NCC, and they're learning from kids' ministry. My, my oldest is about to be in student ministry next year, so I can say that I have a firm appreciation for everyone that does ministry here and then especially for guys like Roy who want to just exposit God's word weekly to people like you so that not only are our kids learning God's word at home but they're also learning it here um, from these faithful pastors as well so just grateful for Roy uh, grateful to be here um, and just grateful for all of you guys I know most of you probably know me from either kids ministry or just from seeing you around at church so uh, just fun to be able to see all your faces this morning uh, if you guys wouldn't mind, I'm going to open us up in prayer here and pray for myself and then pray for you as well. Let's pray. Lord, uh, just so grateful to be here this morning. Uh, as I said, uh, just grateful to you most of all. You are the one that sovereignly works these things out and uh, you are the one that graciously uh, grants us faithful servants to your church like Pastor Roy and Pastor Christmas and the rest of the men who serve here, uh, just grateful to be able to follow in their steps and try to uh, teach God's word in faithfulness and in truth. And I ask that you would help me to do that this morning. Uh, don't let any word that comes from my mouth be um, anything false, but let everything be truth and, and be edifying to your people. And uh, we need your help to be able to do that. I pray for all of the, the hearts of the students that are here this morning, that you would soften their hearts towards your word, that they would um, just sit and listen attentively as, as you hopefully speak through me to them concerning how they might respond uh, to opposition, which is our topic this morning. Thankful for our time, and I pray that you would bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. So as uh, Daniel said, we're all in seminary, and uh, in seminary lately, we've, we've been learning a lot about how to face opposition, uh, and I think rightfully so. If you've been paying attention at all to what's going on in our society or even in the world in general, you probably notice that the culture is getting worse and worse pretty quickly and the acceptance of traditional Christian beliefs is fading fast. There's actually new government proposals. I don't know if you guys know this. There's new government proposals that are being put forward almost on a weekly basis now which are seeking to silence Christians from teaching biblical truth to the people, not only in their churches, but even in their own families as well. Christians are rapidly becoming public enemy number one as people long for the days, even now, of just doing whatever is right in their own eyes. Oppositions toward, towards Christians is rapidly escalating on a grand nationwide and even a worldwide scale. But not only is opposition escalating on a more grand scale, but opposition seems to be escalating even on a more personal level as well. Though most of us can't say that we've ever faced any severe forms of persecution in our personal lives, many of us have faced and probably have experienced the malicious personal attacks of others. I know in my own personal life, I've been called, and these are from family members, I've been called a religious zealot, a cult follower, and one family member even went so far as to say that my wife and I were creating monsters through our desire to evangelize the people, in, you know, our friends and our family around us. And those are family members that are saying that about us. Now, 
I recognize that some of you guys may have already experienced similar circumstances in your own lives. People might hate you. They might gossip about you. They might slander you behind your back. And they do things that reveal that they probably just want nothing more than your own personal failure. So how do we handle this? How do we respond to the malicious, slanderous, and cruel attacks from some of the people that are supposed to be our closest allies? How do we handle opposition, even just in a more general sense, in a godly way? Our passage this morning has the answer for us. I would ask you guys to please open your Bible to the book of Psalms, chapter 5. The book of Psalms, chapter 5. I'll read the passage for us. It says, For the choir director, for flute accompaniment, a psalm of David. David says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. One of the things that I want you guys to know is when you study the Psalms, it's not like when you study 1 Corinthians or Colossians where you have a very specific purpose and occasion that you kind of just follow throughout the entirety of the book. Chapter by chapter, you kind of know why the Apostle Paul is writing or whoever the biblical writer, why they're writing and to whom they're writing to. Now, when you study the Psalms, you really kind of get to parachute into kind of a new purpose, a new occasion, and a new setting for every single psalm you study. The title for our psalm this morning tells us that David is the writer of the psalm and that it was intended to be sung in the corporate worship services of the nation of Israel with flute accompaniment. Now, beyond this information, the situation can really be gathered from what the passage itself says. Here, we know that David's facing formidable opposition. He seems to be surrounded by people who dislike him, who are slandering him, who are spreading lies about him, and who are really just intent on seeing his downfall. Now, beyond this, we really can't specify what the exact situation was that David was facing, but I think that, at least in a small way, we can all kind of relate to what David is experiencing here. We either have been, or I can tell you for certainty, you will be the victim of hateful opposition at some point in your life. In this text, we get a look into the prayer life of a godly man, which gives us insight into how to face opposition in the right way. I summarize this text like this. Here in Psalm 5, David models five attributes of a godly response to opposition. David models five attributes of a godly response to opposition. First, 
David models a humble recognition of God's sovereignty. A humble recognition of God's sovereignty. Look at verses 1 and 2. David says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. Now, there are four things that we should pay attention to in these first two verses of Psalm 5. First, I want you guys to notice the urgency behind David's prayer. He uses three different imperative verbs to make a a strong appeal for God to hear his prayer. He asks God to give ear or to listen closely to his words, to consider or to pay attention to his groaning, and then to heed or listen attentively to the sound of his cry. So whatever was happening, David knew that the opposition that he faced was serious, that the situation was urgent, so he sought God's attentive care. Second, notice the various forms of prayer that David engages in here. He asked God to hear his words, to consider his groaning, and to heed the sound of his cry. So whether David was able to speak clearly to the Lord, or to sigh incomprehensibly to him, or to literally cry out to him, David had confidence that God would hear his prayer and would respond. Third, notice that this is very personal, okay? This isn't some foreign impersonal deity that David's praying to. David calls him, what? My king and my God. And there's an amazing truth that we can all affirm here. Amazingly, this psalm reveals that while God is the sovereign king over all the earth and is able to come to the aid of those who seek his help, he's also close enough to his children that they can call him literally their king and their God. He's my king. He's my God. David knew the Lord personally, and he trusted that the Lord knew him and would listen to his prayer. Fourth, and most importantly, we should notice the identity of the one to whom David cried out to. David cries out to his king and his God. Though we don't know for sure, like I said, we can't know the exact specifics of the situation here. It is very likely that David was the king of Israel at the time of this particular situation in his life, this trial in his life. Here, David recognized who was truly sovereign over his situation, however. Do you guys know what that word sovereign means? Anybody? What does sovereign mean? I'll take anyone's answer. What does that word sovereign mean? Go ahead. Yeah, in control of everything. He reigns supreme. He's in control of all things. So David's recognizing who is ultimately in control, who is reigning in his particular life at this time. Though David was a powerful king, he recognized that God was in control and that he alone could be counted on for help. It was his sovereign king that he prayed to. There was no one else that he had the ability to turn to for help. So David begins his prayer by trusting in his king to listen attentively to his urgent pleas for help. Now, As you guys think about this, why do you think it's imperative? Why do you think it's important for David to think about and to consider and to recognize God's sovereignty in this situation? When he faced opposition, why was it important for him to recognize God's sovereignty over his situation? Go ahead. Might have felt overwhelming, and if he felt overwhelmed, why would he, why would he want to focus on God's control over the situation? Go ahead. No. Yeah, it's not like this took David or took God by surprise, right? God has a plan. He knows exactly what He's doing in this world. He's in control of all things. So David recognized God's ultimate control, and he trusted God to help him in his time of need. That's exactly right. So as king, 
you can imagine there were plenty of resources at David's disposal to handle circumstances exactly like this one with his own ingenuity, his own skills, his own wisdom, right? So in other words, there was plenty of room for David to be self-reliant and self-dependent, to depend on his own resources to help him through this situation. But does David do that? No, he doesn't, right? Instead, he humbles himself. He recognizes that God is in control. There's no one else and nothing else worthy for him to turn to. He knew that God is the true king over all the earth and that God does whatever he pleases. Listen, guys, like David, we all too must humbly recognize God's sovereignty, not only against opposition, but in every single circumstance in our lives. Just as he was David's king and was David's God in this situation, he's also, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he's our king and he's our God. He's there for us as well. There's no room for self-reliance or self-dependence when it comes to facing the various circumstances that we might face in life. We're not to lack trust in moments where others turn against us. Rather, we are to seek God's help, trusting that he's in control of our situation. We must maintain a humble recognition of God's sovereignty in the face of opposition. Not only did David model a humble recognition of God's sovereignty, but he also displayed a settled confidence in God's character. A settled confidence in God's character. And this is seen in verses 3 through 7. Look at verse 3. David states, In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. Here, David turns from these urgent petitions for God to hear his prayer to now he has a, a settled confidence that God will absolutely do so. As he prays diligently to the Lord in the morning, he trusts that God will hear his voice. Now, there's an interesting word used in this verse that has caused kind of a little bit of a variation in how we translate this passage into English. How many of you guys have like the NASB or the King James Version of the Bible? Okay, who wants to read me what their NASB or King James says? I saw a bunch of hands up. <laughs> Go ahead, buddy. Yep, so he says, I will order my prayer to you. Who has the ESV? Anybody have the ESV? Kaylin. Verse 3. Oh Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you as well. You guys hear that difference? So one says prayer, one says sacrifice. So what, what's going on here? So as David expresses his diligence and persistence in praying in the morning, he uses a verb translated, I will order, or I will lay before you. The ESV translates that, I will prepare before you. But the problem is, he doesn't exactly say what he will order before or what he will set before the Lord. That's why if you, as you guys heard, if you have the NASB or the King James Version, the word my prayer is in italics there. Those words are actually not there in the original Hebrew. So what do we do with this? Well, it's led many commentators to kind of speculate on exactly what David planned to set in order or to prepare before the Lord. Some, like the translators of the NASB or the King James Version, have taken the context into consideration. Now, does Pastor Roy teach you guys about studying your Bibles, how you need to understand the context in order to understand what a passage is saying? I know he teaches you guys that. So the translators of the NASB and the King James Version are saying, we need to take the context into account here. Since David's been talking about prayers, prayer in verses 1 and 2, and then he asked the Lord to hear his voice here in verse 3, they believe that David's simply saying that he's setting out his prayer or his request before the Lord. Okay, that makes sense, doesn't it? Now, others, like the translators of the ESV, recognize that the word prayer is actually never used with this verb elsewhere in the Bible. So, therefore, since that verb is never used when speaking of prayer and it's used often of someone 
preparing a sacrifice before the Lord, they believe that David's just simply describing preparations for a morning sacrifice in this verse. Now, what's the big deal? Ultimately, whether you say setting out a prayer or preparing a sacrifice, the point remains the same. Whether David's preparing a sacrifice or he's setting out his prayer before the Lord, David planned to speak to the Lord formally in the morning. He was going before the Lord seeking God's help and then eagerly anticipating God to respond. So as he did so, David fully anticipated that God would hear his voice because he says, I will order my prayer to you or prepare my sacrifice before you and I will eagerly watch. The word watch here emphasizes like an eager anticipation of what's to come. David was waiting expectantly, almost like on the edge of his seat, waiting on God to act. This reminds me of just a couple days ago. My daughter knew that she had a sleepover at, at a friend's house on Saturday, and then kind of short notice, spur of the moment, she actually got to have a sleepover with that same friend at our house on Friday night. But all day long, when she heard about it on Thursday night, the next morning she woke up, she's like, Dad, what time is it? Dad, what time is it? Dad, is it time yet? How many hours are left? And she was eagerly anticipating the arrival of her friend. When I said, hey, it's just a few more minutes, she darted to the front of our house, went to my office, opened the blinds, and she was looking outside, waiting expectantly. When was her friend going to get there? That's the illustration that David is making for us here. He's saying that there's an eager anticipation. There's a watching and waiting for God to act. He was confident that God would act on his behalf. Now, why do you think that he can have such confidence that God will act? What do you think gives him confidence here? They also teach us to be very comfortable in, with silence in seminary, so I'm just going to hang out here all day. <laughs> What is it that you think there, that there is about God, maybe, that gives David confidence that God's going to answer his prayer? Why can he eagerly anticipate God's response? God's never failed him. Yeah, God's always dem demonstrated him to be, to be faithful. And he's on to something there, okay? The reason that David has confidence that God will answer his prayer is not because of any worth or value that David finds in himself, okay? It's only because he knows the character of God, that character, one of which being his faithfulness. But in verses 4 through 7, he actually tells us two specific characteristics of God that give him confidence that God will answer his prayer. Look at four, verses 4 through 7. He says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me... By your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. Now, there are two main aspects of God's character that give David confidence in this passage. Can anybody name what those might be? What are those two characteristics of God that are outlined here in verses 4 through 7? Okay. Yeah, so God's holiness, maybe? Yeah, that's one. God's holiness. And what's the other? Loving. Yes, you guys nailed it. So his holiness and his love. Those are the two aspects of God's character that give David confidence that God will respond in a positive way to his prayer here. Now, the first thing that David points out is God's holiness. David presents God's holiness that's almost like peeling back layers of an onion, and he systematically reveals six facets of God's holiness 
holiness, which give him confidence that God will respond to his prayer in a positive way. First, he says that you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Though many in our world today uh, might take sin lightly, thinking that sin is entertaining or even humorous, God doesn't. And I know you guys are probably in a realm in your own lives that, you know, people think that vulgar humor is funny or vulgar TV shows or they watch, you know, uh, movies that kind of uh, bend the truth in certain ways that kind of make comedy out of sin. Well, what David says here is that God takes no pleasure in those things whatsoever. He doesn't find sin fun. It's not attractive. It's not funny. He takes no delight in sin whatsoever. We should do the same. Second, he says that no evil can dwell with God. The word translated dwell here describes someone who would visit somewhere temporarily. The word makes us think of kind of like a nomad passing through like a a foreign land. He's living in a tent temporarily, and then he just moves on to the next location. So the picture that David provides for us here is pretty vivid. It's pretty clear. He's saying that God is so incompatible with sin that even the most temporary coexistence is utterly impossible. He's saying that God is so holy that evil cannot even visit God's presence temporarily. Third, David declares that the boastful will not stand before God's eyes. What he's saying here is that these boastful people, as he describes them, are are people that are vain and arrogant fools. And he's saying that whether it's in the final judgment or even in the assembly of Israel, wherever God makes his presence known, these arrogant individuals have no place before him. Fourth, David states that you hate all who do iniquity. Now, how do you guys feel? How does that make you feel to read that verse there? God hates all who do iniquity. What's your initial response to that? How many of you guys have ever heard the saying, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. Have you guys heard that? Almost everybody has probably heard that, especially within the church. So what do we do with a passage here that God says, David says that God hates all who do iniquity. That's talking about people themselves, right? So our ears seem to like the sound of like God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner a little bit more than we like what this passage is saying, right? So what do we do with, you know, a verse like this? Put simply, we take it at face value. It means exactly what it says. God hates everyone who does evil. That's everyone whose lifestyle is characterized by habitual unrepentant sin. And this is a very sobering truth, especially considering the fact that all of us, every single one of us in this room, live lives of habitual, unrepentant sin. When we look at a passage like this, we need to recognize that we were once absolutely detestable to God. He hated us because of the lives of sin that we were leading, and we rightfully deserve God's wrath because of our rebellious lifestyles. But, so don't go running home to your parents and say, like, Jordan just told me that God hated me today. I do want to emphasize this, and we will emphasize it again in a little bit. It's this sobering truth that magnifies the glory of God's love for sinners, the glory of the gospel so much. Though all people are deserving of God's wrath, though God truly does hate sinful people, he chose to send his son into this world to live and to die on their behalf. Perhaps there's no place in scripture quite like Romans 5, 8 through 10, that says this about God's hatred of sinners, but his love for sinners as well. He says, but God demonstrates, Paul says this in Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That was while we were sinners. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, 
we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So, from this passage, does God hate sinners? The answer should be yes, right? Yes. Yet, amazingly, he chose to save sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. David then peels back another layer of God's holiness for us. He says that God destroys liars. Here it's apparent that God takes honesty very seriously. After all, lying is completely against God's nature. God is described as a God who literally cannot lie in Scripture. Yet, if we look at who the antithesis of God is, we know that the father of lies is who? Is Satan, right? The devil. So, when we deceive people with our tongues, who are we reflecting more so? Satan or God? Satan, right? So, it makes sense that David would say here that God destroys liars because when we lie with our tongues we are actually reflecting more so the character of Satan in this world than we are the character of God. And because God is perfectly holy, he cannot tolerate such rebellious behavior. David's confident that God will answer his prayer for help because God will destroy all liars. Finally, David describes God's holiness in saying that God abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. The word abhors here carries the idea of absolute detestation. It means that God loathes these types of people. They're absolutely repugnant to him. What types of people does he say that God loathes? It's people who are treacherous and deceitful, people who betray others, people who are violent and murderous. So David was confident that God would respond to his prayer because, first of all, God is holy. Whoever was David was facing was living in unrepentant, rebellious sin, and David knew that those types of people would ultimately face God's judgment. David waited on the edge of his seat for God to act, first of all, because God is holy. And this thought of God's holiness and his utter hatred of sin and sinners seemed to kind of like bring David to a little bit of a moment of reflection. How could he, a sinner, anticipate a positive response from God to his prayer? Well, his answer is found in the second aspect of God's character that gave him confidence. It's God's loyal love. God's loyal love. Look at verse 7. David says, But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. I really love what David says here. This is kind of like the Old Testament declaration of salvation by grace alone. I'm sure you guys have heard that term, haven't you? Salvation by grace alone. That's what David is declaring here. He's explicitly declaring that it's only because of God's abundant loving kindness that he has access into God's presence whatsoever. The word he uses here, translated loving kindness in English, is a Hebrew word with a meaning that's really kind of hard to fully convey or fully express in English. It's related to that New Testament term for grace that I mentioned to you earlier, but it also seems to have a range of meanings that extend beyond just grace alone. It envelops the idea of grace, but it's associated with other terms like mercy faithfulness, and even kindness. That's why you see it translated here, at least in your NASB, loving kindness. But probably the most concise and accurate way to describe this word in English is to say that it's a demonstration of God's loyal love towards his people. It's a demonstration of God's loyal love towards his people. So David had confidence that God would answer his prayer because he had been saved by the abundant, loyal love of God. There was nothing that he had done to merit God's favor. He knew that he wasn't intrinsically or in and of himself better than even the people that were bent on seeing him destroyed. 
David knew that he was a sinful person just like the rest of us. What separated David from his enemies was the simple truth that David was simply just a recipient of God's love. Guys, this is really the counterbalance to God's hatred of sinful people that we described earlier. Earlier we asked the question, does God hate sinners? And the answer was yes, right? Now we get to ask the question though, does God love sinners? And the answer according to this passage is yes, right? So does God hate sinners? Yes. Does God love sinners? Yes. Both of those truths are truths taught in Scripture. God is both holy and loving. He cannot tolerate sin, so he made a plan that would both deal with sin according to his perfect holiness and justice, but it would also demonstrate the limitless nature of his love towards sinners as well. And what was that plan? Would deal with sin according to God's holiness and justice, but would display his love towards sinners as well. What was that perfect plan of God? The death of Jesus, the gospel itself. That's God's plan, right? The plan was the gospel. God sent his son into the world to live and die on behalf of sinful people just like David and just like me and you. The good news is this. Though God hates sinners, he also loves sinners and has made a way for them to be saved. Everyone who repents of their sins, and we get to listen to these testimonies over uh, in service in a few moments here. Everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ are recipients of God's abounding love. They are no longer under the righteous wrath of God, but can confidently draw near to God. They are adopted into God's family, and as his children, when they face opposition just like David faced here, they can eagerly watch for God to respond to their prayers, knowing that God is on their side. And then how will they act as they have received God's love? Well, they can begin to then worship him rightly. They won't enter God's presence with any sense of arrogance or self-sufficiency. They won't look at those who still face God's condemnation as if they're better than they are. No, they're going to do as David does here in verse 7. They're going to offer worship to God that's humble and respectful. They will bow in reverence to their king and their God, knowing that it is only by his love that they can enter God's presence at all. The question I have for you guys is, is this true of you? When opposition and difficulty come your way, what do you place your confidence in? Is it your own cleverness? Is it your own strength? Is it your own wisdom? Is it your own resources thinking like, you've got this, I, I, I can do it on my own? Or do you reflect on the perfect character of God, remembering that, you know what, evil cannot and will not win in the end? And do you have your confidence in and do you know that you can find help in your time of need because you personally have been a recipient of God's abounding loyal love towards you? David modeled what it looks like to have a settled confidence in God's character in times of difficulty, and each of us should follow his lead. So we've seen how David modeled a humble recognition of God's sovereignty, and number two, a settled confidence in the character of God. And then point number three, David models a steadfast devotion to continued faithfulness. A steadfast devotion to continued faithfulness. Look at verses 8 and 9. David asks, O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. For there is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Now, if we're being honest with ourselves, I think we all have to admit, and this includes me, that it's difficult not to retaliate or to take matters into our own hands when we face opposition like David faced here. David literally faced people who were 
out to destroy him. They couldn't be trusted. They, they seemed to speak nothing but lies. Their inward being itself was bent on seeing David destroyed. That David describes their throats as an open grave tells us that by their words, they left nothing but death and ruined lives in their wake. And they did all of this while trying to just simply cover it up, trying to smooth things over with their tongue. That's what that word flattery means. They're trying to smooth things over. They gave people the outward perception that things were all okay, everything was good, nothing going on here, we're just trying to just follow the straight and narrow path, but really, inwardly, they were bent on taking David out. Recently, the Lord actually gave me a, a small opportunity to practice what I'm preaching to you guys here today. There weren't any malicious attacks against me personally, but my little eight-year-old daughter uh, was lied about and she was made fun of by people that she thought were her friends. Now, I'm not going to lie. Uh, when I heard about what happened, it wasn't my heart's first inclination to say, Oh, Lord, lead me in your righteousness. Uh, my inward response was more like, Who was it? Where do they live? Like, it's time for Daddy to act. You know? <laughs> so... As I was able to just kind of take a breath, take a step back, and really think on what God was teaching me here in Psalm 5, I was able to try to implement this into my own life and then to demonstrate how my own kids could implement these truths into their lives as well. I was able to see what happened to my daughter as the perfect opportunity to really practice not only what I was learning, but what I was going to be preaching to you guys to do here today. That's what's amazing about what we read here. Okay, the fact that David is surrounded by enemies doesn't lead him into sin. It leads him towards the desire for further obedience. David was surrounded by people who slandered him and, and they were bent on his downfall. Yet his response was to request that God would lead him in his righteousness and would make his way straight, make his way smooth, so that David could obey the Lord easily. Guys, if, if you haven't been already, it's almost certain that you will be the object of slanderous and malicious attacks against you. It's an almost guarantee in life living in a sinful world like we live in. So what will your response be when you face such opposition in your own life? Will you begin to get bitter and to begin to resent everyone around you, not even trusting those people that truly do have your best interest in mind? Will you be begin to have imaginary conversations in your head, thinking about what you'd really like to tell that person who opposed you or who had done something uh, terrible to you? Will you go to your own defense, trying everything in your power to just maintain your own reputation? Or even will you retaliate, paying back evil for evil? You know what? These people said this about me over here, so I'm going to go ahead and get them back. I'm going to say this about them to these people over here. Will you take matters into your own hands? None of these responses is appropriate. If you're to respond to opposition in a godly way, you must cultivate the attribute that David models for us here. You must maintain steadfast devotion to continued faithfulness. The fourth attribute of a godly response to opposition is a firm reliance upon God's justice. That's seen in verse 10. David says, Hold them guilty, O God, by their own devices let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. Now, when you guys hear David pray a prayer like this, what's your first reaction? What do you think of? Do you think David's being unloving here? What do you think? Is it right for him to do this? Go ahead. Okay, that's good. Okay, so yeah, let's work through that. So 
I agree. So many of us might sit here and we might pause at David's request here. We might think he's being a little bit unloving or they think that he might have some ulterior motives in wanting to see the punishment of his enemies. So how do we handle that? I think it's important to recognize that David's really only asking God to act in accordance with his own character. Okay, does that make sense? So David's really only aligning himself with the will of God here. David knows that God promises to punish evildoers. We just talked about that a a few verses ago, didn't we? God promises to punish evildoers. And so David is simply asking God to do what God has already promised to do. He's just aligning himself with God's will here. And the important thing to recognize, too, is that rather than becoming self-reliant and attempting to take matters into his own hands, what is David doing here? He's looking to, to God to handle the situation for him, right? In God's perfect justice and in God's perfect timing. David remembers the holy character of God and asks him to carry out the justice that is rightfully due to the enemy, his enemies. So look at what the passage says there. It says that this justice is well-deserved. David says that these men have committed a multitude of transgressions, right? And that they've rebelled against the Lord. So there weren't any innocent victims. David's not praying this on innocent people who are just sitting there and being kind to everyone and loving everyone. These are people that have literally rebelled against the Lord and committed multitudes of sins against him. And finally, going kind of to your point here, it's important to recognize where David's ultimate focus is too. Is David taking their sins personally and having a malicious motive in mind? Or does he have someone greater than himself in view here? Is he taking it personally or does he have someone greater in view than himself? How, how so? How do you know that from the, from the passage? He knows that God's in control. He knows that God's in control, right? Go ahead. Yeah, so emphasis on the you there, right? It's not, oh, they've sinned against me and they've made my life uncomfortable. David didn't take their sins personally, but he recognized that those who were sinning against him were really and ultimately sinning against God. So he wanted God to be glorified in all of this. He didn't say here, judge these people because they're making my life uncomfortable, right? He asked for God's judgment because they were rebelling against God himself. He wanted God to be glorified more than he wanted any of his own personal comfort. So David's motive here is actually for God's glory, not for his own personal comfort. David entrusted himself to God to make things right. He didn't seek revenge on his own. He didn't take things into his own hands. He simply relied upon God's perfect justice. So how do you respond to personal attacks against you? Is your first response simply to remind yourself of God's holy character and to depend on him to carry out his perfect justice? Now, I I do want you guys to recognize I'm not calling all of you to call down God's judgment on everyone that opposes you in your lives, right? But when you are faced with sinful opposition, you can comfort yourself by remembering God's perfect justice and that God will make all things right in the end, right? They're ultimately sinning against God, and ultimately God is going to take, hold them accountable. He's going to make it right. If we're to respond to such opposition in a godly way, we must rely on the perfect justice of God, seeking His glory above our own personal comfort or desires. Finally, in verses 11 and 12, we see that David models a joyful delight in God's care. Verses 11 and 12, David says, But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. 
Here, David broadens his prayer to include the entire body of believers who he describes as those who love the Lord's name and who take refuge in the Lord. He requests that all who seek safety in God would be glad and that they would sing for joy and that God would protect those people. To David, there was nothing that could ultimately rob believers of their joy because they're able to seek refuge in God for shelter and protection against those who seek their destruction. Ultimately, David recognizes that believers are the recipients of God's blessings and favor. They can always rejoice in God because God blesses them and surrounds them with favor as with a shield. The word shield here describes a military shield that was like almost as big as a door. You could carry that thing barely. It was heavy, but it covered you from head to toe. It would be like having Daniel stand in front of you and you just stand behind him. He covers you from head to toe, from top to bottom. He protects you. There's nothing that could get past this shield. So David says that God's people can exult or rejoice in him because they're fully protected from head to toe, with God's favor. Those people who sought to malign and destroy David wouldn't have ultimate victory. In the final assessment, God, God's people can always maintain their joy because they are recipients of God's favor and protection. Guys, despite the presence of people who sinfully stand against you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're someone who loves the name of the Lord and seeks your eternal safety in Him, you can still rejoice, no matter what the circumstance might be. You can find refuge and safety in God, knowing that He provides you with the sufficient protection that you need to make it through any of life's circumstances. There's no level of opposition which can ultimately steal your ability to rejoice in the Lord. As David models for us here in Psalm 5, you can live with a joyful delight in God's care. Guys, I hope that this psalm is as encouraging to you as, as it is to me. Uh, we all need to recognize that opposition in the Christian life is an absolute certainty. My prayer is that when each of you face opposition in your own lives, that you'll be marked by the attributes that David demonstrates for us here. I pray that you'll be marked by a humble recognition of God's sovereignty, a settled confidence in God's character, a steadfast devotion to continued faithfulness, a firm reliance upon God's justice, and a joyful delight in God's care. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truths that were taught here in Psalm 5 and how we might face opposition in a godly way. We know that we need you uh, for our own safety. We need you to carry out your justice in this world and that it is not our job to seek revenge or to take matters into our own hands. Help us to trust in you for all things and to apply these truths that were taught here today. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.